I think I was so worried about people not being able to afford me, being accessible. I think as women, a lot of us worry about like, I just want to make sure my services are accessible. And I'm like, why don't you make sure your business is sustainable at the Mm. price point that you're charging? Because that's what makes you accessible, actually, if you continue to exist and expand. Welcome to CEO School. We're your hosts, Sunira Madani and Shannon Monson, and we believe you deserve to have it all. Less than 2% of female founders ever break 1 million in revenue, and we're on a mission to change that. Each week, you'll learn from incredible mentors who've made it to the 2% Club, as well as women well on their way, sharing how they've defied the odds so you can do it too. You're a real business now, and class is officially in session. This episode is sponsored by The Club, a quarterly box and digital monthly community to help you level up in leadership and life. Learn more today at join.theceoschool.co slash the club. Welcome to the podcast today. We are so excited to have Rachel Rogers on. Rachel Rogers is the CEO of Hello7. She is a total boss, intellectual property lawyer, and business coach. And her mission at Hello7 is to help more women hit a million dollars in revenue, which is something we're very passionate about here. Um, She's also on a mission to help create more diversity in small businesses. So their mission at Hello7 is to empower women-owned businesses, Black-owned businesses, queer-owned businesses, and other entrepreneurs from communities that have been marginalized to make a million dollars in revenue and build wealth. So I just want to start, jump into this. Can we talk about your million dollar mission and where this came from? Yeah. Well, when I started my business, it was a law practice. Uh, that's what I, that was my first business right out of law school. I decided to go solo um, after clerking for a judge for a year. And so I was running that business. I was probably like two years in and um, came across this research that said that like something like 85% of women-owned businesses never made more than $50,000 in total revenue. And I was like so offended by that. (laughs) I was just like, what the hell is wrong with the world that more women aren't making more money? 50K in total revenue, that's not even what they're taking home. It's not enough, right? Um, And so reading that, and then I dug more into the stats and saw that less than 2% of women entrepreneurs hit seven figures. And I was just kind of like, okay, so no, I'm going to go after seven figures for myself. Um... And help others do it as well. And so, you know, I ran my law practice and um, transitioned into coaching. We hit seven figures. And then we really decided to focus on that 100% and make that our full purpose and mission. Um, And really be really blatant about it and talk about it. And because I found that there was a lot of, there's a lot of training out there for women entrepreneurs that's really kind of like early on. Um, geared towards getting to six figures, $100,000, which is also not a lot of business revenue Take because, home. yeah, you're not taking home the whole 100K. You have business expenses. And so it's a lot of hustle. And I feel like 100K is that like exact spot where you're like, oh, this is really working and I am miserable because I'm doing too much by myself and I can't afford the amount of help that I truly need. So it's like you got to get past that point and build a team and that's what gets you to seven figures and beyond. And that's what gets you to the place where you're like, I love this business. I'm making good money. I have an awesome team. Right. But like a hundred K is like right where you're like, ah, 
crap, right? Like you are stressed out. And so I'm like, no, we need to be talking about seven figures. Stop talking about six figures. <laughs> it's not enough money. You know, that's not what we should be shooting for. And so that's why I just, I decided to like really lean into that message because even if people don't work with me, I just want them to know, like aim higher. Yeah. And normalize it. You know, I started my career as a dietitian. So also as a like expert professional, I would say as a lawyer dietitian, you were much smarter than me to go to law law school. Um, But I remember as a dietitian, it was always like being a six figure dietitian was like this elusive number that everybody wants. And I think you're right. And you look at all these coaches online and it's like hit six figures, which is great. That is a great like first initial goal to hit. But let's talk about this because you seem like you know your numbers. If you make $100,000 in revenue, you've got business expenses, you mm-hmm. probably have at least an assistant, you might only be taking home $30,000 a year. Exactly. Exactly Before right. Before taxes. Like that's a bad job. Congratulations that you work 24-7 for a mediocre salary. So I think really normalizing that women can hit that million dollar mark. And even from there, it's it can go so much farther. So take us back because we kind of breezed over your story. You started as right out of school. You just were like, I'm going to start my own company. But was that easy for you? Did you feel, um, what was that process like of going from, okay, I'm a lawyer and I could get a good paying job, but instead... I'm going to also figure out entrepreneurship at the same time. What was that like? Yeah. Well, I graduated from law school. I I actually found law school to be very traumatizing, to be honest. Um, Lots of mediocre white guys who talk down to you and make you seem like you're not good enough or you're not smart enough. Um, Lots of like, well, my dad's a judge and my uncle's a this and, you know, all of that vibe. And I didn't have any of that. Like I was the first person in my family to go to grad school um, and probably maybe the second to go to college, you know? <laughs> so, so, um, I didn't have uncles who were judges and, you know, like people in my family who were high up at law firms or whatever. Um, so the whole vibe in law school wasn't really feeling it. I found my little squad. I feel like it was like this ragtag United Nations vibe squad. <laughs> we're like all different backgrounds and just kind of like, we're not here for this like nonsense. That's part of the, the law school experience. Um, and so I found my squad or whatever, but even just during law school was like, not feeling this whole legal path because I really don't like other lawyers <laughs> is what I'm discovering. Although I was fascinated by the law. Yeah. So I graduated from one thing. Well, one thing I will say is I read the four hour work week in my last year of law school. Oh uh, yes. Tim Ferriss. Yes. Tim Ferriss. <laughs> he's arrived here. He is uh, with the four hour work week. And so I was like, Oh, there's another way to do a career. There's like another career path that is not told to you anywhere. And so I was like, Hmm, that might be something to try. So that was really what planted the idea of entrepreneurship in my head. Um, and then I got a clerkship with a judge, which is a year, um, after a year you get kicked out because the new clerk comes in. Um, and so I went and worked for a judge for a year. And during that time I was researching going solo and reading other books on entrepreneurship and really sort of like educating myself on, could I go solo or could I start a business? Um, and I thought about starting a t-shirt business. I even like had designs made and things and then never really got it off the ground. Cause I couldn't figure out, well, I, I don't have money to actually have t-shirts made. <laughs> it's kind of expensive to start with physical products. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and so- I'm imagining you, 
probably had law school debt. I mean, my husband mm-hmm. is a medical resident and I think there's a lot of people listening that you are following a path and realizing that you feel like this is the way to make it. I mean, yes. I don't know what you were told, but the, my husband was told, you know, if you can be a doctor, that's how you just, that's how you make it. You get a steady paycheck and then you find out actually the lifestyle is terrible. It's not mm-hmm. the kind of life I want. The culture is horrible. Yep. I think a lot of what you're saying, a, a lot of women can relate to, especially minority women. I know my husband's a white man in medicine and he doesn't like any of the surgeons. I hope nobody's listening to this. (laughs) So I think understanding, okay, I went into this career that I thought was going to be everything. And wait a minute, maybe, maybe I want to make t-shirts instead. I think that's something that a lot of women can relate to. Just hold on. Let's assess this before I spend, you know, how long is law school? Four years? Three years. Three years. Okay. So before I spend the next 20 years Mm -hmm. in a culture I don't like, in a job I don't want to be a part of. So the t-shirt business. That was, the, that was the solution. I know. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like I, I was like, let me just try this while I have a full-time job and see what happens with it. And I was like, okay, that's not going to work, you know, for what, for a variety of reasons. It really never really got off the ground. Um, and then I was like, well, I'm a lawyer. I could sell legal services. So I should just start a solo practice. And so I really dove deep into understanding solo practice and figuring out how I could do it and talking to other lawyers who had their own practices talking to young lawyers um, about it, you know, just like really gathering data. So I spent that year that I was clerking for a judge sort of wrapping my mind around entrepreneurship. And, you know, I also did apply to a ton of jobs, did a ton of interviewing for, you know, when my clerkship was over. And I really didn't like any of the offers that I got, right? Like I got lots of job offers. I felt like they weren't paying enough. I felt like I was going to hate the partner, was going to yell at me and then I was going to wind up quitting because I just don't tolerate that well, you know? And so I was like, I think I'm just going to start my own practice. And my judge, like the judge that I worked for, who is a delightful, wonderful man, and my mother and like, you know, family members and friends were like, you're going to do what now? (laughs) Like, We thought you were going to go make six figures as an attorney (laughs) working at a big law firm. And I was like, oh no, I hate big law firms, you know? And even the smaller law firms that I applied to, um, it, it's like that culture, they think that that's what they're supposed to be doing. And that's yeah. what success looks like is like being this big for a model. And so it really don't work for me. And so I just decided to start my solo practice. So it was like, it was a year of like talking about it, thinking about it, researching it, planning for it. And then literally the day after my clerkship ended, that's when I launched my law practice, which is September 1st, 2010. Very cool. How did you land your first client? I emailed everyone I knew. You did tell uh, us more. I love yes, this. This I, is the I hustle actually, approach. Exactly. Yeah. I actually started, so that was the benefit, right? Of like deciding that I was doing this. I couldn't take any law. Like you can't take clients when you're clerking for a judge because you're working right. for a judge's office. You have to be neutral. It's like conflict of interest. Exactly. Yeah. And so I couldn't take any clients until September 1st, but I knew on that date that I could. So I started talking to people in July and August and telling my sister, telling my friends, telling people sort of word of mouth. And a lot of my friends, because the recession was happening, they were losing jobs. Like while I was in law school, they were at corporate jobs, which they were now getting fired from and getting severance packages. And so those, they were using those severance packages to start their own businesses because there weren't a lot of jobs available. Right. Um, and so I was like, great, this is my market. Right. And so I was talking to people and I got my first client before I ever, um, left the, 
you know, I had her lined up and it was like on September 1st, we'll begin. Um, and then the way I got the rest of my clients is I sent, you know, an email out to all my past coworkers, law professors, classmates from law school, classmates from college, uncles, aunts, cousins, like literally everybody I knew and put them on a big old email thread and was like, Hey, I'm starting my practice. Here's what it's called. Here's what I do. Here's how to contact me. Please send me clients. Or if you need legal services, please let me know. And that's how I got three more clients. So they were all friends or friends of friends were my first three clients. And then from there, you know, I started finding other ways to market and to get clients. But like those first six months was all just like word of mouth and friends of friends. There's a couple of things that you said that I want to highlight. And the first is that um, you were prepared. You planned for this ahead of time. You knew it was coming. You had the email ready to go out. You weren't afraid to ask. I think a lot of times we expect someone to knock on the door. You know, I put up a website. I'm expecting people to come. I know I got my first client. I sent an email. This is going to age me to a Yahoo listserv. That's how I got my first my first nutrition client. I sent something out to a Yahoo listserv. And so really taking advantage of the network you have. The other thing that I loved here is you didn't start with your dream business. And I think something I hear people say a lot is I just have this great idea and I want to you know help people make a million dollars or this is my dream company. You saw an opportunity. Okay. Mm-hmm. I see people that are getting laid off. This is a skill that I have. Here's how I can meet the market and create something. And I think yes. you'd probably tell me you're running your dream business now, I hope, but that's not yes. how most businesses start. A lot of times it's just, okay, how do I get cash in the door. Can you speak to that? Exactly. Absolutely. Yes. And you mean, I took advantage of the opportunity that was available to me, right? Like I had the skill, basically law school was my startup costs, right? So I was like, I'm an attorney now. I might as well work with some clients and see what I see, how much money I can make doing that. Um, And I was excited to practice law, right? Like I had gone to law school. I took the bar. I worked for a judge. I, I had a lot of training. So it was exciting to put that training to work. Um, and to help people, most of my clients were black women, were women of color, were, um, black people. Right. So like I was helping them start businesses and that felt really good too. So there was a lot about it that really worked for me. Turns out I don't actually enjoy doing legal work or working against deadlines all the time. Um, but that was fine because even, you know, once I was, I don't remember, I feel like it was two years in maybe three years in, but I hired my first attorney. She started doing the work. I was the rainmaker um, and I was supervising her. And sometimes I I did some of the work as well. And then we got another attorney, you know? And so like, it's still even owning a law practice and running a law practice wasn't, it didn't have to be me doing the work all the time. So it's like, there were things about this business that I really enjoyed, who we were helping, giving them ideas and advice and strategizing with my clients, all of that I really enjoyed. I didn't enjoy, you know, drafting contracts, you know, but I enjoyed (laughs) coming up with the strategy of here's what we're going to do in the contract. Okay, now you go draft it and I'll review it, you know? (laughs) So even in a business model where it's not your favorite thing, you could still sort of alter it so that you're working with people you really like, so that you feel like you're doing work that matters in the world. And so that's why I did it for almost seven years because, there was so much of it that I did enjoy, right? Yeah. And then eventually I, I pivoted into what I really love. And even to say about that, you can't, re- you don't know what your dream business is when you, you haven't don't. started yet. Amen. You just, you just got to yes. get out there and do it to figure out what you like and what you don't like. And then you just keep pivoting, right? And so like in the next year or two, or, or actually in the next 12 months, 
we're building an app, right? And so like, that's the next thing I'm doing. I would have never imagined that I would want to build software of any kind. I didn't know anything about it. And now we're in a place where like, that feels like a really important piece of our business and taking our business to the next level. And that's exciting. And that's my new dream business, right? Is like yeah. building out the software that really supports our clients in a, in a bigger way. So it, it's just like your dream business, what your dream is continues to evolve. You, you reach a certain level of success and then you evolve and you now want something else, right? Like that's just how it works. So you just got to get in the game and start. Oh, I love that. I just got chills. I agree. I always say you can't see the end from the beginning and you would never be here if you hadn't sent an email to all your friends and family, which might have felt uncomfortable to do. And if you hadn't said yes to maybe clients that you didn't want to have. Yeah, I think we all have those experiences in the beginning, but that's what gets you to where you are. Okay, so we have a lot of really successful, established entrepreneurs listening. So I would like to speak next to the the moment when you realized, okay, even overseeing other lawyers doing this work, this is not the direction I want to go. Maybe speak to that burnout around that six, maybe even multiple six figure mark. And when you really decided intellectual property was the direction you wanted to go and creating courses and programs and scaling in that way. Yeah. Well, remember I was an IP attorney, right? So like I worked with people and secured their intellectual property, negotiated deals around their IP. And so I was thinking about intellectual property all the time and mm. created a, a, a product event. It, like I think in 2013, I created Small Business Bodyguard, which was a digital product. That was my first piece of intellectual property that was generating money for me. And it started to make me a lot of money. The like it, my practice was probably around by the end of that year, 300,000 and small business bodyguard brought in that same amount the next year. Right. So I was like, Oh, yeah. I could Wait a minute. just sell this product. I don't even yeah. have to practice law, you know? Um, and so I think that was where my business started to evolve and I started to see other pathways. Um, and eventually I just decided to blow the whole thing up cause I was kind of bored with it, right? Like there's only yeah. so many trademarks you can file and contracts and deals you can negotiate before it starts to feel really, you know, repetitive. It's almost like you master it and then you need a new challenge. Um, and of course I could have done other things. I didn't have to end my law practice to be happy with it. I could have totally been in a place where I didn't really work that hard at all. And I had a team of attorneys and they did all the work and we had a successful business, but that just wasn't the path for me. And so I started coaching clients because people were asking me to. So many of our legal clients were like, Hey, like I see your practice is making a ton of money. Like tell me what you know. <laughs> I want to grow yeah. my business too. And so I started giving out business advice and realized like, actually, this is what I think I would really enjoy doing. And I remember admitting that to a friend, like it took me probably two years to actually say it out loud and admit it, you know, yes. because I think you have that pressure of, I took out all these loan loans to go to law school. I got so much training. Like this is people look highly at lawyers in our society. It feels like a big piece of my identity I'm giving identity. up if I stop doing this. Um, and so it takes a while for you to wrap your mind around that and let it go. But please don't let the identity of being a lawyer or doctor or whatever your parents wanted you to be stop you from doing what you want to do. Um, so anyway, it took a little while, but then I did eventually just start. I started doing both. So I was still running my law practice and doing some coaching on the side. And then eventually I realized like I can just focus on coaching. And so I dropped the law practice and it was a transition because the law is a hard thing to get out of. You have cases that you're waiting on courts mm -hmm. to like 
finish it up, you know? Um, so it took a little while to transition out, but my law practice was making 700,000 when I was done with it. Um, so it was making a lot of money, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. And so literally I started my coaching business and the first year we made a million, you know? Yeah. I think that's something so many women can relate to because it does become like part of your identity and who you are. I know walking away and not identifying as a dietitian anymore felt like, and I didn't even spend as much money or as much training to become a lawyer. And it felt like who I was. And I think, you know, it's hard to walk. It's almost harder in my opinion to walk away from things that are successful and making you money and esteemed than it is from, you know, you got a failed product launch. Nobody really saw it. We're done. (laughs) That's easy. Right. But you have this, you know, what you've become known for and your identity. Um, I would love to hear more about your life as a mom, because as a mom and an entrepreneur, I'm imagining, (laughs) okay, so you, we've like fully skipped over that part, but at some point you got married and had kids in the middle of all this. And I think that's a big fear I hear from a lot of women. I, I can't do both, especially right now in the COVID economy, you know, women bear the responsibility of unfortunately being um, mostly in charge of the kids most of the time. And how, what yes. has that experience been like for you? And why is this something that as a woman, this is part of, you know, what can create freedom for your family? Yeah. Well, I sort of have always rejected the idea that I have to do everything in my household because I'm a woman, you know, and I like my mission in life is to get as many women as possible to reject that entire narrative that like we have to do all the domestic work. We have to do all the mothering. We have to mother our husbands or whoever our spouses are. No, go on, (laughs) go on. So screw that. Um, But I think the way that it evolved was, First of all, I got pregnant with my my daughter six months into running my law practice. And so I was like, this is great timing, you know, um, not not ideal. <laughs> um, but I was like, great. It actually was one of the best things ever. Right. Because it got me so super focused on mm-hmm. making money. Right. And I was always hyper focused on the revenue because I had a child to take care of, you know. Um, and so that was really important. And my husband was in school at the time. And so then, you know, we had our one child, we were like managing the duties of that one kid is easy. A lot of people don't say that, but it's true. One (laughs) child is easy. Have two and then you'll know, right? Like, (laughs) I don't know. I have two and I think it's easy compared to what I I see other moms do. Exactly. It's like, then you have, when you have the second one, it's like a train hit you. You like, (laughs) you're up all night with the baby and then the, then you like, you sleep for two hours and the other one wakes you up and is like, I'm hungry. And you're like, you're what? It's not sleeping. What's happening? It's not easy. I remember one of the, the, I think the like scariest moment of one of my new motherhoods, my, I woke up in the middle of the night, the baby was crying and my 18 month old son was standing over me asking for chicken nuggets. (laughs) I remember in that moment, because mine are really close They're They're about 18, 20 months apart. And I remember in that moment, just thinking, what did I do? Is it, what's the return policy? But I do think it makes you hyper-focused on revenue. Absolutely. I was solely supporting my husband while he was in school and I had two young kids. So like I didn't have an option but to at least make six figures. Like that was going to happen because there was no other way to get paid. Um, But it also makes you hyper 
focused on how your time is spent. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's part of what I was saying earlier too, right? Like we had the one and it was manageable and easy. And then I immediately got pregnant again and was like, surprise. Awesome. Right. <laughs> so like, yeah. And I had another one. Right. And my son who just walked in here is 19 months older, sorry, younger than my daughter. And so then I had two at the same time. Right. So like, I really, you know, and it was actually right after we had Jackson, I was on bed rest with him and, um, I couldn't do anything. I had to stay in bed, literally. Like it was like strict bed rest. And so my husband was in school. He would take my daughter to daycare like leave food for me, like breakfast and lunch would be sitting there, come back with my daughter at the end of the day. And so that's how he became a stay-at-home dad because he had to be. And then we were like, then we had two kids once Jackson was born and, and, and you know, I was making good money at that point. And so we were like, hey, why don't you just keep staying home? And he was really good at it. He's very organized. He used to have timers going off all day. It's like, oh, that's the laundry. Oh, it's time for Riley to eat. Oh, I got to go get, pick up this one from daycare. Oh, I got to do this, right? Like, so he had like such a structured, organized. I'm like the least organized person I know. I would have been We're a visionaries. disaster. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not good at that part. So it's he was excellent at it. And so we decided, okay, let's let him stay home because it made sense for our family. He didn't love what he was doing. Yeah. Um, I loved what I was doing. I was making good money at it. And so that's what happened. And he stayed at home for a couple of years. And then we, and then, you know, when he started working in the business, we hired help and then we hired more help and we're in the process of hiring even more help, right? Because I'm not doing it all by myself. And um, I also don't expect my husband to have to do it all. It's like us against the problem. Like if we're like, Mm. okay, we both hate making dinner at the end of the day. We both had a long day how can we solve this problem rather than fighting each other and passively aggressively banging pots while we make dinner every night, you know? So we hired a chef. Now we have a chef and she's amazing and she has completely changed our life. So like, I'm like, look, I'm good at making money. How can I go make more to solve this problem instead of being stressed out and like a crazy person all the time, you know? You're in very good company. We have lots of, Sunir and I both both believe in help. I haven't done dishes or cooked for myself. It's how I can contribute best to the world. And I think yes. as women, we have this guilt, like if I'm not the one homemaking, or I grew up in an ultra conservative Christian environment where my worth was directly tied to, you know, how nice of a home you kept. And I think that mm. for a lot of women, that is this, you know, if I'm not cooking dinner, if I'm not taking care of my husband. Um, so I think I love that us against the problem. Um if you feel comfortable, I would love to hear more about, because you are also in a, I'd say, non-traditional relationship. And it's been a big shift for me and my husband to go to, you know, out, out earning your husband and being the sole provider versus, um, you know, what we probably expected to have growing up. So what was that shift like for you guys? Was there, was he always just like, Rachel, you're a queen. I'm like here to support you hundred percent. Or was it, were there moments of conflict through that transition? Yeah. I mean, he was always super supportive. Um, And at the same time, I think he struggled with the societal view that like a man's worth is related to how, like bringing home the bacon, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think his friends would make comments. My friends would make comments. um, Mm -hmm. Family members would say things like, oh, so are you looking for a job or like, you know, what are you, are you, are you, do you enjoy not working? You know, like they would have all of these questions that were very suspicious, you know, and we went to like marriage counseling around it because it is so, it's so not the norm or especially it wasn't, you know, seven years ago. Right. 
Um, so that it was something that we had to learn how to navigate. And now I feel like we are, we're both sort of past that stage, but we did have a few rounds of marriage counseling to like kind of work through that because I think it was challenging and it really was, we were both very content, but it's like the world kept telling us this was not okay. And then we were like, well, is it not okay? Right. Like it's hard to combat those messages, um, and then, you know, it just eventually just kept working for us. And, and that's where we are now. And now we're sort of in this place where like he works part-time in the business and then he's like part-time managing this enormous property that we just bought. Yeah. Um, can we talk about the ranch? Yes, we can talk about the ranch. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking being a full-time household manager to a, what is it? I wrote it down. 50 acres. How big is the ranch? A hundred acres? It's 53 acres. Yes. 53 acres. Okay. So you just bought a 53 acre ranch. So let's just acknowledge that even if your husband's full-time job was just managing the property, that is a full-time job. So uh-huh. that's, inc- that's incredible. Um, I would love to hear about, I know you bought it this summer in the middle of a global pandemic. What was it like? Why did you decide to buy this land? And what does owning that much land mean to you? Yeah. Um, well, we actually first saw the property in February, the very beginning of February. Oh, before this. Yes, before any of this pandemic stuff happened. And so... Um, we saw it go on the market. We always wanted to have land, but when we bought our last house, I had just had my youngest son. And so I think I was just like, I'm not ready to own a lot of land and I want to live in a neighborhood. I want little kids coming to my house for, for trick or treat or whatever. And so I was like, if we have this big property, like that may not work. So let's just live in a neighborhood. And so that's what we decided to do. And we thought we would stay there long-term. We were very content with that house. It's a big, beautiful house. Um, we built it and then we found out about this house going on the market and we were like, let's just go see it. It was literally, you know, like not that far from where we, uh, previously lived. And so we went and checked it out and just like instantly fell in love with it. But I was kind of like, well, maybe we'll use it for business, you know, and like use it for retreats and host events and things like that, because we were spending six figures a year Mm -hmm. on retreat venues, you know? Um, cause we do a lot of events. And so I was like, okay, we could do this and that would be nice. And then we could use the property on weekends or whatever. Um, and that was my initial thinking. And then the pandemic hit. Um, and then we were like, we really need a pool. and then we were like actually more land would be nice and I remember one day we were laying outside in our backyard this was probably like April um in the midst of like probably the worst part of the pandemic and I was like you know what we should buy that property and live in it and he was like okay let's do it you know and we second guessed ourselves a million times between then and when we actually went under contract because it took a couple months to get under contract because it's actually two pieces of property financing it is complicated right it's a lot of land we had a lot of different meetings with like the bank the realtors the sellers us right trying to figure out yeah. how we're going to do this deal and how to structure it and so that took some time and then we went under contract and it happened really quick you know once we were once we sort of put that, had done all that sort of legwork in the beginning. And so we closed in August and then we wanted to renovate because it really wasn't our style. So we had two months of work done. Um, and then we moved in, we've only been here probably a month now. And, um, it's a lot to wrap your mind around. You're like, wow. I mean, I walk out of my door all the time and I'm like, holy shit. Like, it's like, I'm in the house and then I walk out and I'm like, oh, I forget that we own all of this. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's like if you're listening, it's like a proper ranch. I mean, there's there's horses and it's so I mean, it's huge and elegant and incredible. And I, I know I'm on your email list and I got the email that you wrote the day that you officially, I think, closed on the house and posted about it on social media. And um, I think the, the just truly the symbolism of you owning that much land and what that means for women everywhere, Black mm-hmm. women. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. Can you speak to that a little bit? And what, what did you feel in that moment? Was there a moment where you looked around and you're like, how is this life? Yeah. I mean, the day we closed, we came here and walked around. We were like, this is ours. Like we have, we have like our own street lamps. <laughs> you know what I mean? Your own like, street lamps. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's pretty wild. And like, you know, we have wells and, and, you know, just like generators and like, there's so many systems on this property as well. Cause we didn't build it right. The previous right. owners built it and lived here for 15 years and then decided to sell it because they were downsizing um, we have like a horse barn and we have, there's another cottage, right? Like there's more than one structure on this property. There's tennis courts and basketball courts and endless amounts of land. We have private trails. Um, so it was really, it was really wild when we first came, like after we closed and walked around and was like, wow, like we actually did that. Um, and of course to like own property in North Carolina where like my ancestors were enslaved, right? Like that is so meaningful. And buying this property was like, really, it was a legacy move, right? I'm buying this not just for myself, but for my children and for their children. And for us to have a safe space, that's like, this is our little cocoon, you know? Um, It's on like the end of a street. And it's like, (laughs) and we, we actually own we own some other property around here. So it's like you get to a certain part of the street. And then after that, we literally own everything after that, you know, and it's kind of crazy. Um, So I think we're still wrapping our minds around it, but we're very excited. And, you know, we want to have, we want to build a farm here, have some chickens. Um, We haven't gotten horses yet, but we're buying horses in the near future. We're actually in the process of hiring a ranch hand so that we can buy the horses and have somebody to take care of them. Um, and we're, we are planning on hosting retreats and doing events and obviously hosting family and friends and stuff once the world reopens. Um, but yeah, we're really excited and we really enjoy it. Even it's like, even in the winter time, you know, it's just beautiful. And to go on like a hike and never leave your property is kind of surreal, you know? <laughs> it's so beautiful. Like, I mean, I'm like covered in chills listening to this and I want you to know, like, I, uh, so incredible. So happy for you. And I want to hear like, what advice would you give to, I'm going to call you baby Rachel, but you know, Rachel, that's starting her first business, right? That first business out of law school. Had you known that you could own a 53 acre ranch, have a business that's generated over a million dollars in a month, right? We're going to talk about that in a minute. I want to talk about memberships. What advice would you give looking back to, if you could go back to that, that younger version of yourself? Um, I think the advice I would give is ask for the money, you know, I think I was so worried about people not being able to afford me being accessible. I think as women, a lot of us worry about like, I just want to make sure my services are accessible. And I'm like, why don't you make sure your business is sustainable at the Mm. price point that you're charging? Because that's what makes you accessible, actually, if you continue to exist and expand, right? Like that makes you more accessible than making your services super cheap, you know? Um, and that's certainly what I did with my pricing early on, like so many women do. And so I think I would say, ask for the money and don't be afraid to like, ask for what you want and, and stop, you know, 
discounting your price and lowering your price and trying to be affordable, right? Um, take care of yourself is what I would tell myself back then. <laughs> it's such good advice. And I think we, we've all probably been in this cycle where you're, you don't want to charge too much. And so as a result, you're completely burnt out. You're exhausted. You're not delivering good products at all. Exactly. Exactly. Um, because we're afraid of being seen as, as greedy or wanting too mm-hmm. much, which I've not seen. I've never heard of a man say that, to be perfectly honest. I've never heard a man say, oh, I'm worried about look, being seen as greedy. But as a woman, I think that's something that a lot of times we have a lot more fear over or how, how could you act? ask, charge that much. So phenomenal advice. I couldn't agree more. Um, I would love to talk more about the, the membership. We should all be millionaires. And what just made you decide to create a membership model? And how has that created sustainability in your business? Yeah. Well, you know, previously our model was we had a mastermind. And so we ran a mastermind for women entrepreneurs. We probably had 50 people in it. Sometimes we had 60, but so, usually 50 to 60 people annually that were in our mastermind that was really focused on scaling right from a hundred K to a million. Um, and so we did that for three years and it was very successful. We had several of our clients hit seven figures during that time. Some, several of them have hit seven figures since then, you know, and so it, it, it was great. And, uh, I think what caused us to pivot is the pandemic when the pandemic hit in March, um, a lot of our clients came to us and were like, "This," because it was a higher price point. Um, and so a lot of our clients were like, my husband just lost his job. I don't know what's going to be happening. I feel like I need to pull back on my expenses. Um, and there were a ton of women coming to us saying, we love your podcast. We love your newsletter. We love all the things that you do. We can't afford to work with you at the price point that you offer. And that's the only thing we sold. We didn't sell anything else. Um, and so people had I didn't been asking know that. us. Yeah, that was our one offer. We ran the same business until March of this year. <laughs> My company before we started CEO school was fully mastermind and the same thing. It was a high, it was a $12,000 price point and then a global pandemic hit. And so I didn't realize that's when you launched the membership. Right. So I launched the, well, in March is when we started talking about it as a okay. company, me and my team. And so we were like, okay, maybe we need to pivot and rethink the model. And I think we had already been thinking about that yeah. um, because we just had this growing audience and so many people were like, we really want to work with you. We just can't afford $2,000 a month. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, my salesperson had been talking to me about it, like different, just like we just started discussing it as a team. And so then we started asking our clients, like, what do you guys want from us? For those of you who like are looking for something at like, you know, a couple hundred bucks a month, what would you want? Right? Like if we were going to create something specifically for you, what did you want? And they came back with like, I want branding advice. I want to know how to get clients. I want to know what business model works best. I want coaching. I want this. I want that. And they wanted everything. And I was like, okay, well, I can't create 17 different courses <laughs> or I could at least, but just like not selling them the all month. separately. Yeah. 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 And so we were like, okay, I think what we need to do then is take everything that we offer, package it and give it, give it all to them and create a membership model. And so that's what caused us to do that. And I honestly, I had never really been a fan of the membership model. I had tried it once before in my law practice and it wasn't very successful. And I just, I don't know. I just, I felt like mem- a lot of people do memberships because they want to sell something at a low price point. 
Yeah. And they just feel like, oh, I won't have to sell. I won't really have to work hard. I'm like, no, you still got to oh. sell people on it. Like you still got, if you, if your it thing is costs always a work. dollar, <laughs> right? Like I, I want to know why am I parting with my dollar? What am if I getting free, in exchange? You got to sell it. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. So, so that's why I, I kind of poo pooed it with a lot of my clients because I felt like they were just trying to skip the work of having uh-huh. to sell and having to really like have a value model. Um, so yeah, that's how we came up with it. We were like, all right, let's try it. Let's take like, let's take no more than 300 people max to start. Um, and then see where it goes from there. Right. Like, like let's start with around 300 people and see if we can get 300 people. So then we launched it. We, we built, we had a member site already being built. And so we just pivoted what we used yeah. it for, um, created some structure, probably took us about a month and a half. And then we launched it in end of April. Um, is when we launched, we didn't actually start until May and it, it, it took off. Like we had a hundred people in it before we actually, before the sales date, people were just messaging us and we were signing them up. Um, and so we got like 350 people, I think from that first round and then George Floyd happened. Um, and I, that, that was the one that really radicalized me. I mean, I was always angry about this stuff and I always talked about it, but like that enraged me in such a way that like I, I expressed that rage and that video wound up going viral and all of these people saw it. And then all of these people wanted to start working with us and they were demanding in June that we reopen the club. And so we were like, all right, we're going to reopen it. 900 people joined that second round. So we were like, holy shit. <laughs> So then we had 1,200 people in the program. Um, and since then, now we're almost at 2,000. So it's There's so many good things I want to touch on here. So many good things. I mean, the first is you asked people what they wanted before you gave it to them. And I think that's something that is the smartest thing you can do as an entrepreneur. Yes. Don't ever create a product in a vacuum is what I say. Exactly. So, or what, one of our big things at CEO school. So you asked people what they wanted. You tested it. You didn't, you know, go all in trying to get 2000 members right out the door, your goal is, okay, let's get 300. Let's test it. Let's make sure we work out any of the kinks. I think that's so incredibly smart. And then I actually, um, I'd love to hear more about truly standing up and being divisive in what you believe in and being loud and outspoken because we uh, feel the same way at CEO school. And I got a bunch of DMs this weekend over, you know, election time about should your business be political? And I would like you to answer that question. I think I know your answer. <laughs> I'd, like to hear, I'd like to hear your answer to that question and to kind of go into how you lean in, leaned into your, using your voice more. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've always felt like who I am is who I am. And I'm not going to pretend to be something else so that I could get business because it just felt, I just don't want to frankly. Right. And there's gotta be, I felt like there has to be a way to make money and be successful and be yourself at the same time and not have to be fake. Cause if I had to do that, I could go work at a law firm and collect a paycheck. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so that was that, but, but that video that I created in June had nothing to do with business, right? Like it had nothing to do with being good for business or bad for business. It didn't really matter. I, I just had to express myself and what I was seeing and what I was pissed about, you know? Um, and somebody could have told me your customers are going to leave. This is going to be bad for business. And I'd have been like, so, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there are just things that are more important than money, you know? And yes. so like, 
and that's this is one of them. So I expressed myself about it. I absolutely, I, I absolutely did not expect that video to get shared as much as it did. I certainly would have put a bra on. <laughs> I thought it was going to be shared as much as it was. I was well, like, I could have done my hair that. and put on a bra. <laughs> that's how I found you. I loved the braless look. I personally never wear one. I, there's a TikTok going around right now. Like we can't be expected to wear a mask and a bra. <laughs> Free the titties. Protect the city. So I loved it. Um, I absolutely fell in love with you right away. And I think a lot of other women do that we're so afraid to use our voice because we don't want to piss somebody off or Mm -hmm. we don't want to lose business or lose money. And I love that if you lose money standing up for what is important to you and what you think is right in the world, then lose money. Uh, Yeah. Lose the money. Yeah. Lose the money. Exactly. We don't, we don't want your money. It's it's we don't we don't want your money. Um, I would love to talk a little bit more about the small business pledge and the town hall that you hosted. We I just I'm gonna be honest. I just signed it this morning. I'm sorry. Awesome. But we signed it this morning. Um, I would like to hear talk a little bit more about you know why did you create the small business pledge? What does it mean? What is it? And how can we all as business owners um, step up? Yeah. Well, in June, in my continued rage, I called a lot of entrepreneurs out, you know? I was seeing different responses to what was happening with George Floyd and the protests that happened after the fact. And some of the commentary from fellow entrepreneurs, I was really disgusted and and completely enraged by it. Like trying to intellectualize something that is just so so core to our humanity, right? Like trying to say, you know, negative things about protesters or looting or whatever. This would be a better strategy than that for protesters. I'm like, they're not strategizing. They are angry. They are so angry that they have taken to the streets. I wanted to like literally slap (laughs) half of the entrepreneurs that were out there talking about this and like doing their black box or doing their, oh, this is so sad. I'm going to give $500 to whatever. And I was just like, no, you collect millions of fucking dollars from black entrepreneurs every year. And you think that your $500 donation and your little commentary about how sad this is, is enough? Absolutely not. I'm like, you must be held accountable. And I guess I'm the one to do it since nobody else is standing up. And so I was calling people out left and right and like just just on a rage tear for about a few, <laughs> for a few weeks. Um, and, and in that process, you know, a lot of people were talking about it. And, and there was a point at which I was like, here's what I want people to understand. I'm not calling you out because I want you to feel shamed and I want you to go out of business. I don't give a shit if you go out of business or stay in business or whatever. What I want is for you to change your behavior. And what I want is to change this idea of like being a good white liberal and saying the pat answer and not actually getting out here and fighting with us. You know, that is no longer acceptable. And so, you know, I didn't want to just call people out. I wanted to call them in. And so the town hall was meant to call people in and to not, I don't want people to remember that and think, oh, Rachel will call you out if you get if she gets pissed. Watch out for her, right? I didn't want it to be about that. I wanted it to be about the actual problem and solving it. And so I wanted to bring attention back to like we as small business owners, we have resources, we have influence. We can use those resources and influence to like make the world a better place and to really start to to contribute to solving this problem and creating more equity among small businesses, you know, and in, um, among our part of the world. Because I'm like how can I have an impact? Well, this is an industry that I have an impact in. So let me use 
the, the circle that I'm in right now and see how can I galvanize folks and create some energy around this problem here in this industry that I'm in right now, you know? And so that's why we did the town hall and I just called in some friends that I knew could, could lend their expertise and share their stories and experiences and be a model for some of us. Um, and so, and, and the pledge, because I wanted people to commit to changing their behavior, right? Like let's have some real action that actually touches the black community and benefits the black community and not just these fucking pat answers that do nothing for us, you know? Yes. Thank you. And I want to say thank you because I'm one of those business owners that it really did impact me. And I think that we all have a long way to go. And I'm going to speak on behalf of white female liberal entrepreneurs in the, in the space. And I think that, that whole, that we do need, we need to all hold each other accountable. Um, yes. And that's, that's how we learn. And so I want to uh, read out the anti-racist small business pledge and then let you guys know it is on the hello7.co website. So you guys can go all take the pledge. Um, the, there's five points in the the pledge. I'll let you lead it, read it in full, but I just want to go ahead and read it right now. Um, number one, name white supremacy and the impact of racism on both our personal and professional lives. Number two, engage in anti-racist education for you and your team. Number three, commit to open conflict and allow discomfort. Mm-hmm. Number four, invest a portion of your monthly company budget to the Black community. Number five, express your sincere long-term commitment to becoming an anti-racist organization. And again, that is, you can read it in full at hello7.co. And I want to thank you for calling us out and, um, you know, holding each other accountable. And I think especially in the online space, we don't necessarily have, there's not a whole lot of regulation. And I think there's a lot of things that we need to hold each other accountable for. um, We're influencing and impacting thousands every single day on Instagram, on our podcast. And I know when I saw how close the election was, I really felt um, like I need to step it up. You know what I mean? We have a lot of power and influence and it's really important that we are staying aligned to our core beliefs and standing up for the things that are important to us and not, um, you know, being afraid to lose a couple dollars. So exactly, exactly. It's like, yes, let's lose those dollars and let's like gain humanity, right? (laughs) I think what people don't understand, and I've I've talked to some fellow Black entrepreneurs, and I was like, what people don't understand is that, like, I would give every dollar in my bank account back in order to, like, have my children walk the streets and not have to worry about cops shooting them, right? Like, (laughs) at the end of the day, the money, fuck that. There are, like, these things are much, much more important. They're, They're not even comparable, you know? And I wanted people to feel that. I wanted them to understand that and stop talking about it in this sort of intellectualized way without really understanding like how painful this is, how upsetting this is, how, how dangerous this is, you know? And so I hope that that has happened and we have plans to continue this conversation and people continue to sign the pledge, which is amazing. We actually have an article coming out this week talking about the anti-racism and the small business pledge. And we are surveying our audience to see like, for those of you who have signed the pledge, what have you implemented? Where are you getting stuck? Where do you need support? And so we're using that data to decide how we're going to continue to support people and keep this mission going. Well, thank you so much. I, we really appreciate it. And I think that we, we can all do better. And I, I, I'm really excited to see, um, you know, change is the only way change is going to happen is if we keep having conversations about it. And as you know, business owners, we have influence and responsibility. And um, absolutely. Thank you. Okay. Before we wrap up, I have heard you say what got you here won't get you there. And I've heard you talk about this all the time. So what got you to six figures isn't what got you to seven or to that first seven figure month. So 
can you break down what you think that, you know, the big three things at, um, that really helped you to get to where you are right now? Yeah. Well, I think at the, at, you know, in order to get to six figures, it requires a lot of hustle and putting yourself out there. Um, and you know, it is mostly on you, right? At that point, you might have a couple of contractors you work with, but you don't have full-time team members typically. Um, and so you're going to hustle, 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 right? Put yourself out there, do all the things you got to do to make this business happen. Sell the thing, deliver the thing, market the thing, all of it. And then you get to six figures and you have to change your strategy. Like continuing to hustle will actually just keep you in that spin cycle of around 100K. Maybe you'll get to 200, but you won't get past it. Um, and there's actually data that supports that like at that 250 mark, if you don't start seriously building a team and hiring full-time help, you will not scale past that. Um, and so I think, you know, you do need that hustle. You do need to sort of have the, the growth and like put your ego aside and be uncomfortable in that beginning. And then after that, you have to have the balls and the courage to hire people and pay them and learn how to manage them and learn how to like transfer that success to you're not creating success. They're creating success on behalf of the business, you know, and that's what you have to learn how to do. You got to learn how to be a leader and manage. Um, and then you get to seven figures and there's even new challenges because now you're no longer the leader in the business anymore, even right. You have a leadership team and they're making decisions on, on the business's behalf and they're telling you what needs to happen in the business to grow. Right. And so it just, your role as the founder and CEO of the business continues to evolve um, and you have to be open to the way that it changes. And I think what happens to a lot of people when they get to like that multiple six, seven figures, they start to get bored because they're not needed, right? Like the business is running without them, which is the whole point. Yeah. <laughs> but and then, then you we'll, build an app. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But that's what happens is like you're, you maybe you're bored, right? You create personal goals. You start thinking about other aspects of your life and then you get ideas, right? You have conversations, you do research, you write books, you get on stages and then you have an idea for how to take this business to the next level. And then you work on that and usher that in. Right. And that'll get systematized and then you'll be bored again. Right. <laughs> so like that's the cycle. Yeah. I've heard people say, you know, does it ever get easier or, you know, am I ever going to get past this point of burnout or exhaustion? And I always just kind of laugh and say, yeah, you will. And then there'll be a new level and a new devil. And I think yes. that, that's kind of, we're, we're kind of at some level, like addicted to the growth game, right? We're yes. so excited to, to learn and conquer a new thing. And I don't see that as a weakness getting bored. I think that's why we are who we are as entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And we're, there's so many problems in the world. So many, yes. so many problems and we need people to step up and solve them. And I think we each, especially as women, we have unique perspectives and your perspective as a black woman is different from my perspective. You know what I mean? And bringing that to, that's how we're creating businesses that impact the global economy. I mean, if you don't believe that your business can impact the economy, then I think you could do a little research right now. I mean, we exactly. have so, so much influence and power. So uh, any last advice you want to leave our listeners? Last advice. Okay. I think my last piece of advice is um, something that Lovey said on my podcast recently. And she said, normalize being expensive. And I loved that so much. And I think more of us need to get comfortable with, you know, charging what we're worth and raising our price and being okay with, yeah, I am expensive. If you don't want to pay it, don't pay it. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> 
I don't need to explain why I'm expensive or justify my price to you. Like I've presented to you the value. If you want it, this is what it costs. The end. No explanation necessary. Exactly. I'm expensive is a complete sentence. I yes. love it. <laughs> all right. Where can our listeners find you? Where can they learn more about We Should All Be Millionaires? Where do you hang out? So we're at hello7.co. You can check us out there. Um, we have a podcast also called Hello7, or you can find me on Instagram at Rach Rogers ESQ, Rogers with a D. And you can pre-order my book, We Should All Be Millionaires. It's on Amazon and Bookshop and all the places. Um, so we would appreciate a pre-order if you're interested in the book. Cannot wait to get my copy. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Rachel. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. We want to invite you to follow CEO School on Instagram for show notes, inspiration, and exclusive behind the scenes you won't find anywhere else. We also have an absolutely incredible free resource for you. It's the seven lessons we learned building seven and eight figure businesses. These are complete game changers and we want to give it to you completely free. All you have to do is leave a review of the podcast, why you love listening, screenshot the review and email it to hello at ceoschoolpodcast.com and we'll send it your way. See you in the next class. This episode is brought to you by the Icon Method. If you're a service-based entrepreneur, a designer, nutritionist, photographer, educator, and you feel like the only way to make more is to work more, this is for you. The Icon Method is our proven playbook to win back your time with passive income. It stands for ideation, creation, optimization, and niche. Here's the deal. We love running big businesses, but we don't believe your business should run you. And there is a way you can take your years of expertise and experience and turn it into six and seven figure programs that change lives in your sleep. Our Icon alumni are running best-selling online courses, membership sites, and digital downloads across every industry imaginable, and we want to show you how to. If you've ever thought about launching a passive program, or maybe you're just curious what this could look like for you, go right now to ceoschoolpodcast.com slash icon. We have an incredible free guide taking you step-by-step through the whole icon process. This has been completely life-changing for so many women, and we want to invite you to dream bigger and expand your impact with this proven method. Again, that's ceoschoolpodcast.com slash icon.